0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, we're looking at how the state of Israel has dealt with the thorny question of population growth. Now Israel takes a fairly unusual stance when it comes to supporting reproduction. Here's an example. Here in the United States, when a woman wants to conceive using reproductive technology, say IVF, she often has to pay for that out of her own pocket. That's not how it goes in Israel. There, health insurance covers as many rounds of IVF as it takes to have not just one, but two children. Now, that's not the only pro-natalist policy that Israel has in effect. There are lots of others, and they reflect, among other things, a deep demographic anxiety in Israel. This week on our site, TabletMag.com, Rebecca Steinfeld examines the history of Israel's pronatalist policies. Rebecca is writing a dissertation on the topic, and she's joining us from her home in London to talk about her research. Rebecca Steinfeld, welcome to Vox Tablet.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Now, you begin your article talking about the somewhat shocking decision Israeli courts made in granting Yigal Amir the right to conjugal visits while he serves a life sentence for the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, who was the prime minister. Tell us a little bit about that case.
1: Um, I think that Yigal Amir's case is very interesting because of the paradox that it appears to represent. That on the one hand, somebody has been kept in solitary confinement for nearly 16 years, which many would consider to be a form of torture um, and a gross violation of a, a basic human right to have freedom of association with other prisoners. But on the other hand, the right to family life and to father a child has been extended to Yigal Amir. So the, and this is why I think it's such a fascinating story, because in in other countries, um, such as the United Kingdom, in United States federal prisons, prisoners are not generally allowed conjugal visits. Um, it's, it's sort of considered a privilege rather than a basic right. But in Israel, by contrast, it's seen as a right, even for somebody like Yigal Amir, who has committed in the eyes of most Israelis, one of the most heinous crimes it's possible to
0: commit. Right. I mean, you say in the article that uh, the decision to allow him to have conjugal visits is consistent, really, with uh, pro-natalist policies in Israel that date back to the state's founding in 1948. Yeah. I wonder, Rebecca, if you could walk us through that early history.
1: From the moment of the first Zionist settlers arriving in Palestine under the Ottoman Empire, there was an awareness that there was a population problem in the sense that the Jewish Zionist settlers were in a clear minority um, and they were vastly outnumbered, not only within Palestine itself, obviously in the region too. And in addition to that, there was a pretty marked fertility differential. Jews were having far fewer babies than non-Jews. And the desire to establish a Jewish state which necessitated having a Jewish majority, obviously then meant that there was quite a heightened demographic anxiety. And policies were established from the beginning, from the, from the foundation moment of the State of Israel, essentially, uh, to try and encourage, in particular, Jewish fertility. That was the main concern, that Jewish fertility was low. Um, and that's what I saw talked about a lot for my research. And so, for example, in, in 1948, something called the Birth Prizes Scheme was set up, which gave women... Um, and 100 lira reward in a letter from Ben-Gurion himself on the birth of their 10th child. And then after that, a range of other policies and laws were established or passed um, with a similar aim. So, for example, in 1968, there was the Fund for Encouraging Fertility, which which gave subsidised housing loans for families that had four or more children in which one member of the family had served in the IDF. And then I think you see the sort of the same pro-natalist policies in action in terms of the incredible array of fertility technologies and provisions for the uptake of fertility technologies which exist in Israel. So you mentioned in your introduction, for example, the fact that in Israel you have unlimited access to IVF treatment up to the birth of two live children, and according to some Israeli health insurance policies, it's even three live children. And Israel has very much blazed a trail in terms of posthumous reproduction Um, spouses are now legally able to conceive children using their dead husband's sperm Um, and and at the moment we're actually waiting for the results of a ruling on whether or not grandparents are able to to use their dead grandson's sperm in order to conceive a conceive a child too so you see these these very pronatalist fertility policies right through from the establishment of
0: the state to the present day Now, it is pretty easy to see these policies as being driven by a desire to increase the Jewish population in Israel. Of course, there's other factors. I mean, if you think back to the Bible, there's the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So there's religious imperatives. What are the other factors that drive this kind of policy?
1: Well, I I agree with exactly what you're saying. I mean, the the question for me was the extent to which specifically this demographic anxiety had been the sort of the key determinant of fertility policy, as opposed to the other possible explanations. You mentioned the biblical commandment to be fruitful and multiply. I think that's definitely featured quite prominently, particularly given the, in in a way, the disproportionate political power of the ultra-Orthodox population inside Israel, you can see that the sort of religious pronatalism is manifest in certain very specific policy moments. So, for example, in relation to the abortion law, um, I won't go into detail with that now. But I, but I definitely think that, that the biblical commandment and the, the notion of barrenness as this sort of tragic fate to befall a woman is is something that's very influential, not not just for the ultra orthodox community, but I think for the Jewish population in general. In, in addition, some have said that this notion of Israel emerging in the shadow of the Holocaust, in which six million Jews were were murdered, resulted in a sense of duty amongst some people that they ought to make up the numbers in inverted commas. So that that may have featured as well. And and finally, I think that there's what's known as the insurance policy effect, which essentially is that when you're in an uncertain situation and you perceive yourself to be under threat either from war or terrorism. You don't just have one child; it's too risky. But what's quite interesting is that you tend to find that there are sort of fertility spikes, sort of nine months, forty weeks after events in which that sort of sense of threat is even more heightened than normal. And I think it's sort of a response to um, to that perceived threat and, and the desire for just for not only personal but also national survival. So I think that those, those sort of four factors, Holocaust, the Holocaust biblical commandment, the insurance policy effect, um, and demographic anxiety have all had a an, an effect on this exceptional
0: pronatalism that exists inside Israel. You've covered a lot of ground, and I want to talk about some specific uh, matters that you've raised. The first thing I want to ask you about, though, some of these policies like giving uh, uh, a family 100 lira for the birth of the 10th child or you know, a stipend if they have a child who served in the IDF. If you're talking about a country in which you have an Arab population who are citizens and they have voting rights, but they're not necessarily serving in the IDF, I mean, to what extent are these policies applied across the board? Are they only uh, administered to Jewish mothers?
1: I mean, that that was essentially my research question, the extent to which Israel had established and maintained an ethnically discriminatory fertility policy. Um, and... The secondary literature that exists on the subject had essentially claimed that it that it had operated exactly such a policy. And there were certain specific things that were cited, such as, for example, there is a claim in the secondary literature that the reason that Ben-Gurion's birth prizes scheme was actually abolished was because so many Arab women were claiming the, the reward. Um, and an, another claim is that um, Arab women are the only women in Israel to have been given free contraception. And when I came across these claims in the secondary literature, um, I was quite shocked because it seemed to me that if these if these claims were true and that the policy had been discriminatory, ethnically discriminatory between Jews and non-Jews, then it amounted to a form of racism or or eugenics, essentially. And I felt quite dissatisfied for various reasons with the evidence that had been given in the secondary material um, and, and some of the some of the deduction. So I went out to Israel um, to investigate exactly this question. And there is no short answer, and I'm still trying to ascertain exactly what's gone on, and my my findings at this stage, I should emphasise, are very much preliminary and tentative. But the impression I get overall is that it certainly seems to me that there have been no policies that have explicitly discriminated on the basis of ethnicity. One could argue that, for example, in terms of the 1968 Fund for Encouraging Fertility and the 1970 Veterans Child Allowances Scheme, that by giving um, child allowances or subsidised housing loans to families in which one member has served in in the IDF or another national security service, there is an, an implicit or a de facto or has the effect of being discriminatory since Jews are obligated to serve and Palestinian citizens of Israel are exempt from serving. But interestingly, Those um, provisions were actually abolished as a result of um, a deal that Yitzhak Rabin, in fact, made with the Arab parties when he was in in power in in the early 90s. So since then, there have not been fertility-related provisions in terms of IDF service. That doesn't exist anymore. And I've certainly found no evidence, for example to substantiate the claim that free contraception has been given to Palestinian citizens of Israel. And when it comes to the abolition of the birth prizes scheme, what I found in the archives was that, yes, there was definitely a lot of concern about the fact that many Arab women were claiming the award, which I should mention was open to all women, irrelevant of of race or ethnicity. And in fact, the questionnaires for applicants for the award were actually translated into Arabic so that Palestinian citizens of Israel could apply for the Heroin Mothers or Birth Prizes Scheme Awards. So it it was actually, in, in terms of the nature of the policy, it wasn't discriminatory. In terms of the motivations for its establishment, that does seem to be that there was a desire to increase Jewish fertility, which is why when lots of Arab citizens then started claiming the award, what I saw in the archives were lots of letters coming from, say, um, regional governors, particularly in the north of Israel, which has a very large Palestinian population, saying... Should we be giving this award to Palestinian citizens? We're sort of wondering what the point of that would be. Since they already have very high fertility, why would why would we be encouraging it? And then the answer came back from the Prime Minister's office saying, yes, give the award. We're aware of this problem, but give the award. It's open to everybody. So the motivation may have been to try and effect a change in the fertility differential and increase Jewish fertility, but in actual fact, it wasn't discriminatory, as a policy, and in terms of the reasons for it ending, it may be that that these letters reflect the thinking on the part of the people who abolished it. But the official reason given was that it became superfluous once the 1954 National Insurance Law was passed, which gave all women a maternity grant on, from the birth of their first child onwards, on the condition that they gave birth in a in a hospital. Um, so. And that, again, was open to everyone. Everyone. And although at first the uptake for that was higher from Jews than Palestinians because more Jews than Palestinians gave birth in hospitals, arguably the reason for making it conditional on hospital birth wasn't because there was some sinister, ethnically discriminatory reason um, or thinking behind it um, that people knew that, you know, more Jews gave birth in hospitals than Palestinians. So if we, if we attach the two to one another, then fewer Palestinians will will get the maternity grant, arguably it was a much more a maternal health and a public health concern that you you reduce maternal mortality by insisting on hospital births. So this shows much more, in my view, the sort of the influence of the medical establishment in formulating fertility policy than it does, than it speaks to any sort of sinister, ethnically discriminatory intent.
0: What drew you to this topic in the first place?
1: Well, the reason that I was I was drawn to to studying um, the history of Israel academically was because I, growing up, I was exposed to a certain narrative um, of the history and politics of the state of Israel and the Israeli Palestinian conflict um, through exposure in Jewish youth groups and synagogue and Sunday school, and then when I went to university. I took a general survey course on modern Middle Eastern history and in the course of reading and researching papers I came across a whole body of literature that completely contradicted absolutely everything I had been raised to believe. Um, And there was just such a contrast between these these two narratives um, that I suppose it just sparked in me this desire to really want to figure out what had actually happened and which narrative was was true um and so that's sort of what what sparked my interest academically in the history of israel and i suppose for me the big question that troubled me then and still troubles me now um relates to this idea um, of, a, of a Jewish and democratic state and whether or not that was really just an oxymoron, whether you know that you, you couldn't have um, a state that was simultaneously um, designed to privilege one ethno-national or religious group above all others and would also guarantee the rights of all its citizens irrelevant of their religion or their ethnicity. Um, and then I started thinking about the question much more historically um, and I started thinking about what was needed in practice for there to be a Jewish and democratic state and essentially it's a Jewish majority. And I looked at the statistics and to see whether or not there had been a Jewish majority on the eve of statehood um, and noticed that, that there very clearly wasn't, that in actual fact there was a about a 68% Palestinian Arab population and a 32% Jewish population. So then I started thinking about population policies um, and then finally into wondering whether or not population policies had included
0: fertility policy. Rebecca how socially acceptable is it for a woman or a couple in Israel to choose not to have a child
1: I think that there is intense pressure on people in Israel to bear children um, and everyone I spoke to in the course of my research, both when I was doing my formal interviews and also when I was just talking to Israeli friends would comment on on the pressure that they felt to bear children I mean feminists debate The sort of the relative merits of things like having such um, incredibly advanced reproductive technologies and such incredible access to them, because on the one hand, it's it's sort of liberating for women to be able to, in a way, defy nature, to be able to conceive a child to a certain extent at any point in their lives, irrelevant of their marital status. Um, And that's wonderfully freeing. But on the other hand, it puts an enormous amount of pressure on women to conceive for all the reasons um, that I lay out before in terms of providing soldiers for the fledgling nation um, to defend the state of Israel um, and winning the battle of the bedrooms um, against the Palestinian population. And also, I think, in terms of just traditional cultural values about the importance of family that exists for many Jews um, and in Judaism. So I think for those reasons, I think there is is quite intense pressure.
0: Rebecca, thank you so much for speaking
1: with us. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Rebecca Steinfeld is a doctoral candidate at Oxford University. She spoke to us from her home in London. You can read her article this week on our website, tabletmag.com. We're really eager to hear your thoughts on this podcast and on this topic. You can send a note to podcast at tabletmag.com. You can also post a comment on our website directly. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us again next time.